Welcome to Take Notice, Amplifying Black Stories. I'm your host, Allison Pricinder-Higgins. The mission of this project is to take notice, to listen, to hold space by amplifying Black stories, experiences, and voices. Conversations on family life, finding joy, and interests of folks in our country and around the world who encounter racism on a daily basis. A portion of these discussions will be dedicated to holding space for guests who are comfortable sharing their personal experiences with racism. Stories help us all learn and connect. We are here to listen, to take notice. Thank you for being with us. Let's take a moment to recognize, to take notice of the voices that are so often unheard. Land acknowledgement statements are an important part of honoring those whose land we now live and work on. I have chosen to begin each episode this way to spark ideas and keep these conversations in the front of our minds so that we may learn how to do better. I would like to acknowledge the land on which this episode was created, and since this episode was multiple episodes in one, it uh, will include all of the land in which I have edited and recorded these episodes. So that would include showing gratitude to the traditional ancestral land of the Tulalip, the Snohomish, the Stiligwamish, the Soxhuatl, the Snoqualmie, Shoalwater Bay, and Chinook tribes recognizing that these names are not the original names of the people of these areas. As I continue to learn how to better acknowledge Native people of these lands, I will adjust the wording of the beginning of each episode. I encourage listeners to research the land on which you live and are listening right now. Recognizing this is just the beginning. Welcome to another episode of Take Notice, Amplifying Black Stories. Thank you for being here with us. In the next couple episodes, we are going to share clips and snippets of each of the episodes that you've listened to in season one. Some of them will be clips that you've heard already, just to kind of highlight certain aspects of each episode and each interview. And some will be clips that we ended up having to cut from the original interview in order to trim down the timing. We couldn't fit it in, but I made sure to cut it out in a way that would stand on its own so that I could share it with you now so that we can hear as much of each guest's story as possible. This project this year has allowed me to meet and converse with so many individuals that are so special. Their voices and stories are now in my head as I walk through my days and returning to each episode in order to prepare these special episodes to close out our season has been an experience in gratitude and appreciation on many levels for everyone who has participated, encouraged, and listened to this project. So thank you. As I say in nearly every single interview, I could talk with folks forever. There are so many trails we could go down with stories and philosophies and ideas, but there's only so much we can fit into 45 minutes, even though I went a little bit beyond that at times. So Um, You'll hear from each guest, as I said, from season one uh, over the next two episodes. And the only guest that you will not hear from yet is Darius Higgins, as we will be doing another full conversation as our final episode to close out the season. So thank you for being here. And thank you for uh, allowing this project to come to life in season one. I hope you enjoy these snippets and clips to remind you of the wonderful guests that we had this first season. We pushed our release of the podcast a little bit early in order to get Joy Stanford's episode out before last year's election took place. She was running for office and we wanted to support her as much as possible on that journey. 
Unfortunately, she did not get elected, but I think her impact on her community is undeniable. We didn't necessarily have to cut anything from Joy's episode, but I wanted to include something from each of our guests from the first season. So we discussed involvement of women and women of color in local politics and how much of an impact that involvement can make on communities and structures. It was an inspiring discussion that I thought would be an appropriate reminder to continue to seek out ways in which you are able to contribute and get involved in your own communities for the greater good. So this is a clip of my conversation with Joy Stanford. That is the the point and the hope anyway. That is it, is to get more women, more women of color to step up, even if it's just locally, even if it's the municipal races. So mayor, city council, commissions, there's so many, fire commission, parks commission, even those positions are really important to what's happening. You know, what's happening with our kids, what's happening with our environment. Because you think school boards, that's an important role. There's, I know there's like two, there might be, yeah, I think there's two of the eight Black women that are on school boards that are running right now. And so it's like, that's important. Parks Commission, you know, when you're talking the environment, it's important. We want to know, you know, that we've got good folks on there who are really thinking about and being thoughtful and mindful about our area and about our environment. And so even starting there and just kind of working your way up. I, I always, people say, did you always want to run? No. I didn't know. No. no. (laughs) And then the other question I get from the older folks that I talk to on the phone is, so how long are you going to do this? How long are you going to be working for us? And then you're going to go to Washington, D.C. and be some big mucky muck. And I and I always tell them, no, I'm here to make a difference in my own state. And then I'm going to retire and I'm going to turn around and hand this baton to some other badass woman who's going to come along and do an even better job than I'm doing. And that is the hope, right? Is, isn't that the, that's what we want is to be able to hand that baton off to someone else. So that's why I'm, I'm on the Emerge board, Emerge Washington board, so that I can keep encouraging. Anytime I see a woman who's doing something in the community, I'm like, let me talk to you. Come here, come here, come here. <laughs> you need to run. You need to run for office. And we can help you do that at Emerge, you know? So I just, I see the passion in folks' eyes and I'm going to, I'm definitely going to try to turn them out to say, hey, you should run. You should run for something. I don't care what it is. Run for something. Another one of our first guests for Take Notice was co-owner of Black Coffee Northwest in Shoreland, Washington, Darnisha Weary. We discussed a variety of topics in our interview, including the importance of mental health and modeling good mental health for our children and youth around us. I wanted to include a clip of that conversation here. I made sure all of my, I had a lot of people who were like my yes people, right? Like whatever's going on, like, yes, girl, that's perfect. Even if it's making it worse or if it's, I needed people around me who were the harsh critics, (laughs) right? I had to build that into this, like accountability partners. And I had to tell people, like, make sure I'm held accountable too. If I'm overworking, if you see me spiraling, call it out call it out and tell me to, to be done for the day. And mostly came from my husband. I mean, when he got that permission, it was like, it was like, yes. <laughs> right. I was like, dude, no, calm down. And then I actually, and then I actually had that conversation with my kids, my teenage daughter who's 17. And I was like, we're, we're in this together and you're, and she's modeling my 
anxious, stressed out control behavior. Like I see her modeling that and I'm like, we got to break this and I'm going to break this with together. So you call me out and I call you out. And that's just, it's just worked. And it's not traditional, but it's just what's worked for us. My very first interview for this project was with Mr. Reggie Garrett. Reggie and I met through the Seattle music community a while back, and so it was such a joy to be able to hear more about his story through Take Notice. I will be forever grateful for Reggie's patience and easygoing attitude with our interview as I was nervous, making mistakes, and still figuring out how to get this whole thing started. I still am, but just with a little bit less anxiety around it. So Reggie, great graciously sent us an additional short story when we asked if he would be interested in contributing to that part of the project back when we thought we would add on a short story to the end of each episode, which we did at first, but moved away from after a while because of timing. For Reggie's episode, we didn't cut anything either, but I wanted to share his short story that he shared one more time in case you missed it. So here's Reggie Garrett's short story. My wife and I, uh, started reading the book uh, Cast, which talks about the status of society, uh, particularly in the United States, but it also sort of makes reference to, you know, the caste system in India and other systems of caste around the world and throughout history as a way of explaining uh, what we have tended to call race in this country. At any rate, uh, there was a passage in there that talked about dominance and the way people on top behave. Specifically, it talked about how in Southern society, uh, white people would address black people in very demeaning ways. I mean, one of the things that they could always do if you were black was address you by your first name, you know, Uh, or they'd call you things like auntie or uncle or things like that, but never Mr. Garrett or Ms. Smith or Mrs. Whatever, you know, if you were white, you could always step into a personal personal space and address them in any way that you wanted. And it reminded me of something that happened when I was a lot younger, probably around 12 or 13. I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I remember at one point I was driving somewhere with my father. Actually, he was driving. I was riding. I wasn't old enough to have a driver's license yet. At any rate... Uh, We were going down a long hill, and at a certain point, I noticed that he glanced in the rearview mirror, and then he started to slow down, Uh, and eventually I heard police sirens. My father pulled over and stopped, and the sirens got louder, and I could tell that the officer pulled up behind us. I could sort of see the lights, the reflection of the lights flashing on the inside of the car. So... As you are supposed to do, my father sat there with his hands on the wheel uh, so as not to disturb the officer or, you know, provoke him into doing something that might not be too pleasant for us. Anyway, eventually, the police officer came up to the side and tapped on the window, so my father rolled it down. Officer said, uh, you know, can I see your license and registration? So my father took out his driver's license and handed it to the police officer. And the police officer said, can I see your registration? And my father said, I don't have the registration in the car. Now, you need to understand that in those days in the state of Ohio, you did not have to carry the registration 
for your car around in the car. You just had to present it at court if you had to go to any proceedings. But that was the law. You didn't have to have it. Uh, He looked at my father's driver's license, and then he said, and I remember this, he said, Leonard, is this your car? And I cannot describe what that did to me to hear this man address my father by his first name as if he were a child. Now, I know a lot of people these days don't think that that's a big thing, but it actually is sort of a recent thing in the society that people have started to address folks by their first name so much, so often, so early in an encounter. When I grew up, that was definitely not what you did. You know, if you were introduced to somebody, you met somebody, you would address them by their full name or their title and their last name, as is uh, Leonard Garrett or Mr. Garrett. The same way that when we addressed a police officer, we addressed him as officer, not as Charlie or whatever his first name is. The other thing you need to understand is that in my culture, uh, growing up, all of the older folks referred to your first name as your familiar name. In other words, that's what people who were familiar with you could call you. It meant that uh, a person had put in the time required in your relationship uh, for you to become comfortable enough to allow them within that circle of familiarity. And that that's your decision to make, not theirs. I decide when you can call me Reggie. You don't decide that. I do. That's true of every person. Other than that, you were always formal. It was a sign of just mutual respect. Um, Addressing somebody by their first name or familiar name would be like stepping into their personal space uninvited. It is a very patronizing thing to do. At any rate, this police officer called my father Leonard and it upset me. I mean, I didn't do anything, but I can remember to this day how upset, how angry I got. And the idea was to think about this guy treating my father that way in front of me, to think about somebody treating an adult that way in front of their child, because it made a difference. And I'm absolutely sure that the officer knew it at any rate. Actually, frankly, I'm not sure if he knew about it in that way. I think that that was just his way of behaving. I don't know how he, how he behaved to white people, but I'm sure that that was just his way of behaving around black people. And it annoyed me to no end, and to this day I remember it. And remember he said, you know, is this your car? And my father said, this is the family car. Actually, it's in my wife's name. And so the officer looked at the license again, and he went back to his car. And after a while, he came back and he said, Leonard, again, are you sure this is your car? And that was another thing that I heard that to this day I have remembered. And, you know, I I notice all the time. One, that he called my father by his first name again, which once again annoyed me. But the question, are you sure this is your car? As if my father might not be sure that this is really his car. And my father said, it's the family car. The car is in my wife's name. Yes, it is our car. But I noticed that too. I'm somebody who grew up being really tuned into language and communication, how things are said, 
what is said by what is done, you know, in addition to just the words that come out of your mouth or how they come out of your mouth. And to this day, you know, at least in that moment, I grew to understand that in a sense, he was suggesting that my father might be lying. Are you sure this is your car? And I've had people do the same thing to me over the years. Like, you know, are you sure that this is it? Of course I am. It's me. Are you sure that's your name? Are you sure this is your guitar? Of course I know. I paid for it with money I earned. I remember that I was upset because I felt so bad for my father. And I was, even at that age, so aware that there was nothing he could do about it. Absolutely nothing he could do about it. He had to put up with it in front of his son. Anyway, that's really kind of it. You know, it's not a big involved thing. It's just one of those little things that we've lived with over the years that, you know, I noticed. And since that day, I have been hyper, hyper, hyper aware of. I was always taught when I meet people, you address them by their title and their last name. And you do that until such time as they inform you what it is they'd like to be called. Like when you get to that space that you can step inside that circle and become familiar. At any rate, it's not something that you take up on yourself. And when you do, it's an aggressive act. Anyway, that's my story. So many of my guests I look forward to meeting in person someday soon. One of them especially is Kevin Cabet. We were connected through a mutual friend for the project, and we just ended up having such a rich conversation. Actually, two conversations because of my own technical mishaps. He was gracious enough to do a second interview with me because, you know, technology. So thank you, Kevin. Um, we ended up discussing a lot of our own philosophies on life and our different cultures. A piece that I ended up having to cut from the original episode was where we discussed how people n can numb themselves and distract themselves from the things that torment them, including how, how many people approach avoidance and fear and the changes that have been necessary in this last year because of having to be stuck at home. So... I appreciate being able to have this sort of free-flowing conversation with Kevin, even with neither of us having ever met in person. So I look forward to meeting you in person soon, Kevin. Um, but here is our conversation that um, was cut out of the original episode, and I'm happy to share it with you now. Is there a um, history in your family of alcoholism, or did it kind of manifest in your father alone that you could see, or, or do you know? Um, I can, yeah, you can see, yeah, I guess some people turn to religion, some people turn to alcohol to, to deal with issues, eh? At least mm -hmm. I read that somewhere, yeah. Yeah, it seems, I, I ask because it seems as though a lot of times it's either, a, you know, I'm no expert, of course, but it's either a behavioral mm -hmm. thing or, or it is, there is a family, a family line in it, uh, or there can be anyway, as mm -hmm. far as addiction or, or alcoholism and, and but yeah. maybe it's a portion of of other things. I mean, I'm sure there's many hands within that issue um, that that yeah. make that happen. But it seems like culturally too, not knowing how to deal with the kind of demons that come up in all of us. Um, Indeed, that, that's the path that some people. That's yeah, easiest I'll, for some people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I wonder sometimes if it is just. I guess it's interesting that huh, shame because I mean, um, I wonder if it is if we normalize what we see, how people deal with stuff, one, 
like an example on how people deal with things. And then if there is no space and uh, for people, space for people to talk or for people to to find ways to deal with issues and healthily so, then alcohol became, becomes this or drug abuse becomes this avenue that people just, uh, becomes an alternative for people to deal with it. And I'm not saying that because I'm not passing value on alcohol abuse because then also people turn to faith. And in my opinion, some people are presupposed, some people turn to faith, and that becomes a sense of abuse. And they turn to faith solely and forget about life or even to deal with it, to face the issues that they're going through. And that mm-hmm. becomes, yeah, people turn to religion. Um, yeah, people turn to sports, for example. And it's, it's very interesting to see what people choose and or even what as a society decides that's acceptable to turn to. Right. And without even necessarily realizing that that's what they're doing, they're just kind Mm -hmm. of trying to avoid. And so finding the thing that helps them avoid and then there they are with maybe not even recognizing it until something intervenes, maybe if if it does. So, yeah. Tough. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So many layers to all the things. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. How we numb ourselves, eh? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. It's interesting that I, I, I I think about that. Especially with the more freedoms we get, what are the mm-hmm. things we numb ourselves with? Well, for example, like weed is uh, is legal. I wonder how many of the things we we term ourselves people use it to numb themselves. Oh sure, Within, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it can be tough to sit with it, eh? <laughs> to sit with ourselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's yeah. why I think it's been so interesting this year how we've all been stuck with ourselves and oh, so yeah. many people have have mentioned that you know and really either you know it can be really a, a good thing even though it's hard or mm-hmm. or there's more avoiding avoiding happening you know yeah. so it's it's yeah. interesting it's really interesting yeah. i found that it's been you know i feel guilty saying that it's been really good for me but uh, mm-hmm. because i know that it's been really really bad for other people but um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for circumstances that are beyond their control but Indeed. but yeah it's it's interesting because i think at least in our culture here in the United States, you know, going, 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 and just keeping yourself busy and Mm. just all the stuff, you know, that you can fill your brain with instead of just sitting in silence or reading or Mm. anything that's going to make you kind of connect with yourself for even just five Mm. or 10 minutes. I think people Mm -hmm. just, it's, there's some fear behind actually sitting and doing that. Yeah. And now that we've been forced to kind of do that this year, because <laughs> what else yeah. are you going to do sometimes? <laughs> then it's it's been interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. One grandma that I wrote and say that um, in every population, she supposed that um, it can be divided into 25 percent uh, and twenty five percent, and then the fifty percent, twenty five percent being whoever like quote attribute A, uh, twenty five the other twenty five percent being attribute B. And then the 50% being a majority of a population being swayed, depending on which of the two, it seems predominant. Mm. In the sense that so this and the predominant culture in the States has got this allure of busyness and yada yada and keeping at it. And so that this the rest gets swayed that way. Whereas, mm. or even probably or probably even in moments where introspection becomes 
highlighted, then the rest of the 50% gets swayed. And then that's why someone can say, oh, this season probably had was a season of intro- introspection. I wonder. Right. Yeah. That's probably very, very accurate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that sounds right. And there's some truth to it. I, yeah. I mean, there's enough African saying that says behind every smoke there's a fire. So probably there's some truth mm-hmm. to it. Yeah, absolutely. Another one of my guests that I am very much looking forward to meeting in person in the future is Melanie Bell. I had such a fun time interviewing Melanie. She had so many ideas and and she has so much talent and wisdom and it came through in our conversation. There were a couple of sections in our conversation that I did end up having to cut because of timing that I will share with you now. This first section was where we discussed the perception of beauty in our culture and the beauty of black women and her ideas and thoughts on that. The next section after that, she discusses her experience with the higher education system mishandling her transcripts and degree, which had ripple effects on her own career. She also brings up a book that I have on my reading list, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. The last section is a story that she shares about Paella from one of her books, and then she shares some information about that book. So here is some clips that were missed from the original episode with Melanie Bell. You're not in a movie. Mm. Everybody can see, you know, the emperor is not wearing clothes. How else can I metaphor (laughs) allegorize (laughs) this? When the United States continues to pretend for however many years that, just for instance, Black women are ugly, right? Mm. Then you get a year like 2019 where Miss America, Miss Teen America, Miss Teen USA, Miss Universe, Miss everything is black right because they've been denying that you know like Kerry washington is ugly you, you know yeah they've been saying grace jones looks like a man <laughs> mm-hmm. instead of like what's her name margaret thatcher you know what i mean you know what i mean <laughs> so I, i'm using old examples i know okay but like lupita nyong'o is or what's lupita's last name mm, you know i couldn't tell you uh, yeah, she's so like Prince now, right? You just say Lupita <laughs> and everybody knows who you're talking about. But like, she couldn't be more plain faced and cute. You know what I mean? It's just the first time that a lot of non-Black folks are admitting that chocolate is, is a pretty color. <laughs> that they, they love chocolate and coffee. It's two of their favorite colors. <laughs> I know. And they're just now admitting it, you know, so Mm. Lupita gets to be in movies. But meanwhile, Angela Bassett's had a fantastic career. Whoopi Goldberg, dark skinned black women have been doing everything since before Nina. You you know what I mean? It's not like Mm -hmm. the stigma really got in that specific black woman's way that did not care like my uh, male assignment, my grandsister on my mother's side. She was a dark skinned woman. And in essence, there was no one more beautiful than her. Yeah. That is how my grandfather, I mean, grandmother raised us, that light-skinned even people, they just, well, they weren't as unfortunately beautiful as her. <laughs> it wasn't their fault. They just weren't, you know, she just sort of reversed colorism um, yeah, on the world yeah. around her. And mm-hmm. it worked like gangbusters. Because, like, I'm, I'm like a regular brown. I'm like a regular wood brown. You know what I mean? Just regular brown. And mm-hmm. my entire life, I've been trying to get black. <laughs> <laughs> I've just never been convinced that I was black. I wanted to be so black. I was invisible, you know, like the atmosphere itself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. 
<laughs> that's great. If I had cared mm-hmm. that that institution chose to not give itself credit for one of its best students, mm-hmm. if I had cared, you know, Michelle Alexander, the author of The New Jim Crow. I don't, I'm not familiar with that. No. Well, if she had cared, she, I, I actually met her in, uh, Portland, Oregon, before she started writing and, and becoming a lawyer and all of that. Now, she was a clerk, which means she does the, the job of the Supreme Court. When you're a clerk, you literally write the law, okay? You mm-hmm. write the, the stuff for the judge, and the judge reviews it and says, okay, yay or nay, right? So yeah. she's doing that while she's writing the new Jim Crow. But the reason she had to write it is because she had a black son, mm-hmm. and they lived in a black neighborhood. And she started a coffee shop, and it was going well. And the second it did, the entire neighborhood got bought up for cheap by white folk and gentrified. Mm. And they made it into the cutest neighborhood with all of the taxes that they had been withholding from the blacks who had held that land down and paid their taxes over the last 30 years. Mm. They finally put it into the economy. They finally made it legal for you to have a little um, mom and pop. Everybody could have a business license. Everybody could have a loan. Everybody could start a mom and pop. Nobody was stopped from being in business after one black woman in one very small five mile area started a oh. coffee shop. And in order to defend herself legally, because you know she had a, a, a standalone building and all these other people were being allowed to just revamp a motorhome. Right. And it had, they had no law legal, like you have to have a fan, you have to have a light bulb or a light switch at the front door and the back door of your truck. You have to have six steps up. You, ha- you know, all the stuff you have in a standalone building. There are all of these legal regulations, but none of them apply to the white folks that gave all the licenses after she made that neighborhood into something. So she became a lawyer. And after meeting people like that my entire life and seeing, what do you do when you're confronted, <laughs> you know, right. with systemic racism? Well, you just get off your butt and you do something about it. You don't let it take you down. It didn't take your grandparents down. And they were in slavery. They were getting beat with a horse whip. You know, you don't let it take you down. You got it easy, kid. (laughs) (laughs) You laugh in white folks face now. (laughs) When they're they're waving, I'm not giving you this piece of paper. That's the only threat that they can do to me now. (laughs) It's not a horse whip. It's just a little piece of paper. So I can remain Kunta Kinte, in other words. They just have a little piece of paper now and there's nothing holding us back in essence. When, when we educate ourselves, we know that that's our real freedom. That's where, again, all the money, all the ideas, all the Amazons, all the code that's coming from the human mind. That's the real money, you know? So that's, that's my feel on education and, you know, how to get around systemic racism and misogyny. You just, you know, you might know it exists, but it's just so far, it's like a totally different world outside of your, I am filthy bubble. I am God's child bubble. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and you're just waving a piece of paper at me. You're not waving a bullwhip. And yeah. Auntie Harriet stood up against a bullwhip, you know? Mm. So that's, that's me. That's me. So, and another thing my parents and, and grandsisters had always said is if you're honest about yourself, you don't ever have to be embarrassed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Humiliation is impossible. <laughs> yeah, that's true. If you just yeah. tell the truth. They used to say, tell the truth and shame the devil. You know the devil's a liar. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, and anybody that can't stand the truth, you know, will be, mm-hmm. be gone from your sphere. Liars will mm. be gone. 
It's like, uh, what you call it, raid, insecticide for liars, the truth. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's true. I mean, and that's a hard one to learn for so many people. I mean, including myself, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's so tempting to just try to, to fit into the mold and, and mm. do what you think is supposed to be done or something by some, some unknown standard, you know? So, yeah. um, yeah, really getting centered in honesty and, and all that can be a struggle for a lot of people. I mean, you know, like I said, including myself. So yeah, yeah, it mm -hmm. is a day-to-day -day thing. But when you're building something, you just harken back to that. Okay. Every day, mm -hmm. <laughs> power now. Okay. I want this yep. building to stand. Yeah, I want this yeah. building to stand. I want this body to stand. I got to be honest. Mm -hmm. I got, you know, eczema, for instance. A lot of people like let eczema go, right? They're just like, ah, hey, you put a cream on it, property burn. <laughs> and they don't go through the deeper implications of what's mm -hmm. going on with my body. And it's a liver thing. Liver is like one of your biggest organs. It's like cleaning the blood. It's so important. And if you just let things slide and keep letting things slide, mm -hmm. and you just let it slide, then your whole life is like that. Yeah. Slippery slope down. Okay. Okay. This is, this is one of my favorite stories because it's true. <laughs> It's oh, awesome. The Five Minute Paella. I'm going to read it for you. Perfect. Having dinner with friends on the patio of my fantastic freaking loft that I never stop bragging about, we're all in great anticipation of paella, that Latin diaspora food. I'm in. I step out to the patio and heels and things because, you know, no driving and wines on the menu. But the food ain't ready and I'm ready to grub. So I step into my kitchen like, oh, Lord, why don't you buy me a five-minute paella? And bam, like water for chocolate, it's done. We sit, we laugh, we eat. We discover the meaning of the universe. Pero the men, they have no idea. How? How did you make this five-minute paella? They say. I say, well, women have been cooking for what? Ever. It's not that hard. Scene. So that's a story about misogyny. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I love that. Thank you for saying that. Oh, oh my goodness. I love that. <laughs> Tell me about what book that's that's in, because you well, you uh, published a book. Yeah, it's an interlude. It's a very new style of book that I've written. It's essentially a book of poetry. Um, it's something like Shakespeare's sonnets, you know? Okay. Yeah. Where there are connective tissue information issues. Plus, there are some moments of levity. There are some moments of philosophical pondering that have nothing to do with what I just said. <laughs> <laughs> that just let you let go of what just happened. Um, and you're kind of going to need a break because it's a big roller coaster of a book. I wanted to write a story, a, a haiku type story with that sort of rue of deliciousness that stories have. But like in, in a, a second, you know, <laughs> like have a mm. whole scene in mind and get the vibe and all of that and because that story actually happened 
it's just inherently in the maybe 10 sentences of it. So truth is the juice, you know, um, it's the, mm, if you're building anything, I mentioned the architect Zaha Hadid. Um, if you're building anything and you could ask her this any day of the week, <laughs> you have to be honest while you're building, will this stand? Can this hold this weight, right? You have to be really honest when you're building anything from an intellect. If you want it to be great, if you want it to be extraordinary, beyond the pain, then you have to be really honest. And so for me, misogyny is so part and parcel with what is systemic capitalist racism. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, the Jim Jane Crow that's been going on since slavery supposedly ended. We just, we needed more concentrated, fast ways like technology is teaching us to say what we wanted to say. And yeah, punk rock story. That's that's what I wanted. I wanted like, you know how Nirvana has grunge and it's like kind mm-hmm. of long and drawn out and whiny, but punk mm-hmm. just goes bang, 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 you know, like <laughs> Chanel Monet's on. Bang, bang, yep. bang, bang. That's the kind of writing I wanted to do, a little more punk rock mm-hmm. than grunge. So interludes help in the reading. That's that's what that was from. An interlude. Shay Rose and I met back in college in Boston. We're both musicians, and I am very, very grateful that we had the opportunity to reconnect thanks to this project. Since our interview, we've actually been working together on voice and realignment. I've been taking some some online classes with her and just some sessions that have been really meaningful and helpful. Um, she's developing a practice called Embodied Voice, and so I encourage you to check that out. I did end up cutting a couple small sections from our original interview in which she discusses some circumstances where she has been tokenized and also her experience with anxiety and pressures in college at Berklee College of Music. So here are a couple clips that were missing from the original interview with Shay Rose. Yeah, um, I can relate to that. And I think that is what I was like kind of trying to point to by like kind of refining this and being able to name the different parts of this system of racism that we're mm-hmm. all living in. Yeah. So, you know, maybe in, in Braintree, it was more, even in the South, it's more like watch your back. And then, you know, in the North, it's like watch your front because people will be looking you straight in the face. Oh, sure. And you yeah. need to be able to read what is really going on. So, in that sense, I've become, you know, very skilled um, and refined at being able to notice the institutionalized racism and, you know, just kind of reading what agendas are really are about, you know, as I talk about this to you out loud, tokenism comes to mind, looking back at the ways that uh, I didn't realize I was being tokenized and that that happens. And that is a part of institutionalized racism and bias, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and all of those things I have experienced in Boston. And I would say, you know, similar to Seattle, I would put Boston right up there. Uh, You know, we're a democratic liberal state, but there is a ton of new work that needs to be done in the hearts and minds of people who feel like, you know, I'm not racist. I have black friends. My daughter married a black man, you know, however they want to paint it, you know, to justify Mm -hmm. some of this deeper internalized work that needs to be done. I'm curious, 
since you mentioned tokenism, is there an experience that you've had that you'd be comfortable sharing where you've, looking back, realized that that's the position that you were put in? Yeah. So um, without naming the institution, (laughs) um, I will say that I feel like because I feel like I attract good people in my life. And I think we all have big blind spots at times uh, around various issues and topics. I I feel like those who have reached out to me and that I have decided to create and collaborate with, that intentions were good. However, once stepping into the, the opportunity, these behaviors that have never been pointed out or called out once they, you know, or there's just been the status, you know, um, like not realizing that you're inviting a person of color in to use their image and their social capital and their identity to help elevate or say something about what your institution is, and then not feeling comfortable with that same person saying, by the way, I'm Black, and this is how you're treating me, or this is what I'm feeling your institution is doing. You know, these are the things that are coming to me through my lens, I just can't be a face for you. Like, that's not what I'm here for. So I have bumped up against that quite a bit where, for example, I've been asked to be put in front of the mayor, you know, to talk about this institution's um, diversity initiatives, but I'm actually not at the table when there are any conversations being talked about that. So I'm just kind Mm. of propped up as, you know, a token. And so, yeah, um, that took, you know, I didn't really get hip to that. (laughs) You know, because when someone says, oh my gosh, you're an artist, we want to work with you, or we love your opinion or your face and your pictures and your bio and your music, you know, us as artists, we're like, oh my gosh, you know? Right. Um, And I think, again, intentions, I think some of that goodness is there. I want to believe that people are genuinely good, but it's like intention versus impact, right? And so, I kind of was like, yeah, until I had this one particular experience with the institution I was talking about where I felt like I was used to say something about the institution around their diversity, equity, and inclusion that they actually were not at all in mm-hmm. any way, in any way, shape, or form. They actually have it wrong. And they, I think they mm-hmm. still have it wrong. <laughs> oh, really? So oh, if you're man. listening... <laughs> <laughs> You still have it wrong. <laughs> they know who they are. <laughs> they know who they are. <laughs> it's taken a long time to get here. I mean, even at Berkeley, where I felt like I was, you know, so received and supported by the college. And now I teach. So I forgot to mention, I also teach at Berkeley. Yeah, I'm, a, yeah. I'm a professor at Berkeley. I teach in the CWP department. And I also do some adjunct faculty in the voice department. But, you know, through my own personal experience at Berkeley, you know, I was, I think, the most shut down and fearful of my voice to the point where I can look back now. And I was, I actually was having anxiety, like heightened levels of anxiety around being seen, being Mm -hmm. seen in my voice and heard. And I think a lot of that judgment came from myself, but it also, I mean, Berkeley's kind of competitive and, you know, there are many environments that we go into and there might be some, you know, um, competition or challenges, but I, I feel like outside of, you know, that dynamic at Berkeley, which that was there and definitely didn't help, <laughs> right. um, I, I felt so, I felt so hurt by this inability 
to feel like I could speak, just speak, you know, and um, having to be overly prepared and, you know, mm-hmm. going over something so many times to the point where you kind of like squeeze the life out of whatever spontaneity or improvisatory nature that might evolve, you know. So I think we're in a culture where people are expected to speak and say what you mean and mean what you say and concise and, you know, put it in a five second elevator pitch. And I'm like, well, sure, that might be the case, but that is a practice and people have to have the space and time with themselves to know themselves in order to be that solid and clear. It's not just something, I mean, we can do it, right? We all can just Mm -hmm. like, life is great and give them like a cookie cutter answer, which I was doing. I was doing that, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that I look back at some of the stuff and I was like, I wasn't even present. Like what the hell was I even saying? (laughs) I was just like going off, (laughs) you know? So, Mm-hmm. Um, I, I believe that it's like a human right. And, you know, you think about when a baby is born, right. And the first thing that they do is there's the inhale and then there's the actual vocal cords coming together and there's the cry and bam, that mm-hmm. baby, that's the confirmation, right? I think we, we all went through that. If we're all here alive and walking and talking that kind of innate, um, divine strength of being able to bring your voice forth is so powerful to me. And that's my purpose and, and that's my calling at this point. I didn't end up cutting anything from my conversation with Seattle author and playwright Monique Hebert, but I wanted to include this small clip of her describing the importance of the education on Black history mainly provided by her grandparents as she was growing up. The gift of family and having an understanding of their history has a, a huge impact. And I, uh, I wanted to share Monique's experience with that one more time. So here is Monique Hebert. Yeah, so I, um, I want to talk a little bit about my, my grandparents first. So they, because um, they raised me, they played a very big role in my life. And they ended up passing away in 2014, a couple of weeks of each other. So that was very interesting. It was very, yeah. you know, a rough time. But so they were both born in the South and then moved up to Ohio, not together separately, kind of in the late 1940s, early 1950s. So they were kind of part of that great migration where a lot of Black folks were coming from the South and, and moving up North for better opportunities and, and things like that. So to be able to be in a household with my grandparents would experience so much and had such a different upbringing than I did, I think was really helpful and helping me feel rooted in the Black experience because for a long time, going to school and church, being surrounded by so many non-Black people kind of got difficult. And I think with them being there and keeping me grounded and sharing all those stories really helped. And then every summer, we would go down and visit their families. So my grandfather was from Louisiana. My grandmother was from Alabama. So we would always go down and um, visit their families and also take in a lot of the kind of history and I used to say culture of, you know, those areas and the time period that they grew up in. Um, I remember going to like the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, where Bloody Sunday happened. And, and my grandmother like walking me through that and helping me have an understanding of it. And that was really beneficial as well, because that's not something that I was getting in my school classes, like in my history books as an elementary school student, we weren't learning about these kind of things. We weren't learning about like my history. 
And so to be able to have somebody who could kind of walk me through those things firsthand was really helpful. One summer we went to Memphis and, and saw the National Civil Rights Museum, which is um, based on the hotel where Martin Luther King Jr. was shot at in 68. And so mm. to be able to be there in that space, and I went with my family, we we're kind of doing like a, a reunion. And so all of us went together. I remember being very young, but just being really taken with like how emotional everybody else was. And I'm very much an empath. So like, even though I fully wasn't understanding the weight of the situation and what had happened, just seeing the adults around me, their emotions and their reaction to it all was like always really telling. So I'm just really thankful that I had people in my life, my grandparents specifically, that really helped me learn about Black history because it wasn't something that I was getting in school. Thank you for listening to part one of two of the end of season catch up for Take Notice Amplifying Black Stories season one. In two weeks, you can hear part two of our catch up and hear from the rest of the folks that I had the honor to interview for season one. So be sure to tune in for that. And if you missed any of the episodes from folks that you heard today, you can still listen to those episodes now. So check it out. And thank you for listening and thank you for your support. We really, really appreciate it and um, are encouraged to continue forward. So we have a new episode in two weeks and two weeks after that will be our final episode, which will be a conversation and kind of recap of this project and what it will look like moving forward with Darius Higgins. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you for joining us for Take Notice, Amplifying Black Stories. Please subscribe and follow us on social media. We are at Take Notice Podcast. It would really help us out if you could take a couple of minutes to review our podcast. Thank you for your support. Take Notice, Amplifying Black Stories is produced, hosted, and edited by Allison Preisinger-Heggins, co-produced by Amanda Ray. Music by Version Big Five featuring Darius Heggins. Thank you for being with us, and thank you for taking notice. Saying that